Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. It's worth noting that Matthew's gospel was written to a Jewish audience. We base this on our observation that Matthew uses a lot of Jewish themes in this gospel. He also uses a lot of Jewish terminology and idioms. He quotes a lot of Old Testament passages and frequently refers to the Mosaic Law. And as we noticed um, uh, several weeks ago, um, Matthew begins his gospel with a genealogy of Jesus, which is a very Jewish characteristic of, of, uh, of writing. And so we deduce from these things that Matthew was writing primarily to Jews. But we also noticed, even from the very beginning of his gospel, that Matthew is not enslaved to tradition and traditions in the way the, that the Jews have always done things. Uh, for example, uh, we noticed how he included the names of women in the genealogy. That was radical in the first century. Uh, that was definitely a break from Jewish customs. Uh, and in a very similar deviation from Jewish customs, we noticed that, Ma- um, that Matthew frequently highlights the, the faith, in fact, the remarkable faith of Gentiles throughout his gospel. For example, he writes about the Roman centurion who approached Jesus asking for healing for his servant. He, Matthew writes about the Canaanite woman who approached Jesus seeking healing for her demon-possessed daughter. <clears throat> Going back to the women, Matthew includes in the genealogy, a few of them were Gentiles, such as Rahab and Ruth. Even as As he writes about the crucifixion of Jesus, Matthew is the one who makes note of the Roman centurion who exclaimed, "Uh, truly this this was the Son of God. Uh, You might think that it's a little bit strange that Matthew would feature so many Gentiles in his gospel when his intended audience are the Jews. But when you consider that Jesus has broke down the middle wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles, and that he has brought both of them together as one in the same body to be fellow heirs and partakers of the promise of the gospel, it's not strange at all that Matthew would include these Gentiles. In fact, we can draw from this that Matthew had probably gone out of his way to include these notable Gentiles for the very reason uh, of showing his Jewish audience how the Lord has always intended to bring the Gentiles into the commonwealth of Israel from the very beginning of time. And it may uh, have been Matthew's intention to use these notable Gentiles as a way of prodding or inciting his Jewish readers to a more committed response to Jesus Christ. Paul, the apostle Paul, writes in Romans 11, verse 13, that God is using the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy with the intent that this provocation to jealousy will cause the Jews to believe upon Jesus and be saved. Well, Matthew seems to be portraying the Gentiles in precisely this way. Uh, And our sermon text is an excellent example of this. 
here in the first 12 verses of Matthew 2, the people uh, <clears throat> are being, the people uh, who, are, who are being displayed with a credible faith in Jesus Christ are the wise men that come from the East. The people who are being displayed in our sermon text as having a credible faith in Jesus Christ are the wise men from the East. These are Gentiles. They're probably Babylonians, which would be especially provoking to Matthew's Jewish audience because the Babylonians were the nation that enslaved Israel for 70 years. They were the bad guys, the Babylonians. And yet Matthew is showing them uh, the Jews, uh, that uh, these Babylonians that came to visit Jesus were the good guys. Um, it's kind of like when Jesus told the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, the Samaritans were the, the despised nation, the despised people as far as the Jews were concerned. And yet Jesus used, intentionally used the Samaritan, that despised race, as an example of the good guy. While in the parable, the Jewish priest and the Levite are the bad guys, the ones who don't perform according to God's will. Well, here in Matthew 2, the wise men are portrayed as the good guys. Well, Herod, the chief priests and the scribes, all Jewish people, not Herod, but the, the chief priests and scribes are portrayed as bad guys. My intention with this sermon this morning is to consider how each of these groups of people respond to Jesus. How each of these groups of people respond to Jesus. When confronted by Christ, when presented with Christ, how did each of them respond? And what we're going to see is that there are three responses in our sermon text, three responses which are common amongst men everywhere and in all places. The first is those who are troubled by Christ. The second is those who are apathetic to Christ. And the third is those who worship Christ. Those who are troubled by Christ, those who are apathetic to Christ, and those who worship Christ. It seems that the star that was guiding the wise men wasn't necessarily guiding them 24 seven. Uh, this this was unlike the Israelites when they were traveling through the wilderness. For the Israelites, there was always a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. When the pillar moved, the people moved. And when the pillar stopped, the people stopped. But if you look closely uh, and carefully at verse two of our sermon text, you'll see that the wise men arrived in Jerusalem and they began to ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. <clears throat> now the tense and the mood of the verb that is used in the statement, for we have seen his star, uh, presents a, a snapshot event from the past. It's not a continual event. It's not a present event. It's a snapshot from the past. And so what the wise men are saying is that, that they saw the star of Jesus for a certain period of time in the past, but now they aren't seeing it anymore. It was this initial observation of the star which prompted them to travel all the way to Israel to meet the one who had been born king of the Jews. But somewhere along that route, somewhere along the way, the star vanished. 
they lost sight of the star and they didn't know exactly where to go at that point. So uh, when they came to Israel, they went to Jerusalem, which is a logical place to go because Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel. Now being eager and excited to worship the young child, they knew they were close. Uh, these wise men began asking different people in Jerusalem, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? But nobody could give an answer. Uh, nobody seemed to know that a king of the Jews had been born. It didn't take long, however, <clears throat> for King Herod to hear about what was going on in town. Verse 3 says that when he heard that the wise men were asking about somebody who had been born king of the Jews, Herod was troubled. Herod was troubled. And then Matthew adds, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Now Herod was troubled by Christ. Uh, he's going to be, Herod that is, is going to be one of the subjects of our consideration this morning since he serves as a model of those who are troubled by Christ. All Jerusalem was troubled as well, according to our sermon text. But they were not troubled by Christ. They were troubled because Herod was troubled. Uh, let me explain. Herod was a profoundly wicked king. Josephus wrote, he was a man who was cruel to all alike and one who easily gave in to anger and was contemptuous to justice. Nothing was off limits or out of bounds for Herod. If somebody was a nuisance to him, he'd kill them. If somebody was disloyal to, them, to him, he'd kill them. If somebody threatened Herod, he'd kill them. Herod had at least 10 wives that we know about. When his love grew cold for his, the woman who was his favorite wife for a long time, uh, he had her killed. Why? Well, he didn't want to be married to her anymore, but he couldn't stand the thought of somebody else being married to her. So he thought, I'll resolve this issue by killing her. And this prompted two of his adult sons to become angry with their father for having killed their mother. And when Herod learned of those two sons' anger, he killed them. Uh, Herod killed his mom. Herod was lying on his deathbed and an inaccurate report began to circulate around town that Herod had passed away. Uh, one of Herod's living sons at that time uh, heard that his dad had passed away and he threw a party. He celebrated. Uh, but, but unfortunately, the party was about four days premature because Herod had not yet died. And when Herod heard what his son had done, guess what he did? He ordered his son to be executed, which was done. He killed another son. And about the same time that all of this has happened, just days before Herod actually died, Herod ordered for all the principal men in the entire Jewish nation to appear at the Hippodrome in Jericho. Now the Hippodrome was a racetrack that Herod had built in order that people may engage in a sport of watching chariot races. Uh, so, so all the people, all the important people were commanded to go to the Hippodrome. They didn't know why. Once they got there, the doors were locked and they weren't permitted to leave. And then Herod gave strict orders to his top official that 
uh, upon his death, upon Herod's death, to execute every man in the hippodrome. And Herod gave this order because he knew nobody in Israel was going to mourn his death. Yet Herod wanted the nation to be mourning the day he died. And so he ordered this mass genocide in order that the nation of Israel would be mourning on the day Herod died. And when Herod died, a couple days later, his top official refused to carry out the order. Uh, Rather than killing the men who were locked up in the Hippodrome, he released them. Kudos to him. And this should give you a little insight into the type of man that King Herod was. So when we read in our sermon text that Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem was troubled as well, Jerusalem was troubled because Herod was troubled. It's, it's like that saying people use when describing the tyranny uh, some women cause in their homes. The saying is, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Well, the same could be said for Herod. If Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Why was Herod so troubled by Jesus? I'll give you two reasons. First, because Herod was insecure. He was insecure because he was not the rightful heir to the Jewish throne, and he knew it. Herod was an Idumean Arab, which means he descended from Esau, not from Jacob. Uh, this was a disqualifying factor for being king, of, king over Judea. Uh, it was kind of like the controversy over President Obama's birth certificate. If it could have been shown that Obama was born outside the United States, then this would have disqualified him from being the president of the United States. Well, Herod was disqualified, legitimately disqualified from serving as king of the Jews because he was not a Jew. So how did he get around this? He self-identified as a Jew. Apparently, you could just declare yourself to be something that you're not back then, just like you can do today. The problem that's experienced by those who self-identify in these ways is that they know they're really not who they say they are. They know that they're really not who they say they are. And this is why They get so bent out of shape if you don't come alongside them and affirm their lies, if you don't come alongside them and play their little game. For example, this is why you see so much anger and hatred being unleashed under the guise of misgendering. The man who tries to identify, self-identify as a woman knows deep down inside that he's a man and will always be a man. But he doesn't want to accept this truth So he attempts all manner of deception on himself and others, desperately trying to promote the lie that he's a woman, but he can never get rid of his his insecurity in this matter. He, he, He can never get rid of his insecurity because he knows he's living a lie and it troubles him. It troubles him whenever somebody uses pronouns that expose his lie. Herod was troubled because he was dealing with this type of insecurity. Not because he was a man trying to identify as a woman, but because he was, he was an Idumean who's trying to identify as a Jew. 
He knew that he had, been, he had to be perceived as a Jew by the Jews to be accepted as their king. So he was troubled by anyone who could challenge and expose his true identity. When the wise men inquired about the one who had been born king of the Jews, Herod immediately realized this rival to the throne had the pedigree that he did not. Jesus had the necessary pedigree to sit upon the throne of David. Herod did not. So Herod was troubled. The second reason Herod was troubled by Jesus is because he knew that the child the wise men were seeking was the long-expected Messiah. And this is why he inquired of the chief priests and scribes where the Christ was to be born. If you look, uh, if you look at verse 4, you'll notice that Herod asks the chief priests and scribes about the Christ, that is the Messiah. He didn't say, where's this king that's being spoken of? He said, the Christ. Herod made the connection to the Messiah. And this is important to notice because the Messiah posed a greater threat to Herod than a child who might one day grow up and begin campaigning to be the next king over Judea. Uh, To understand this difference, realize that Herod was in his early 70s when the wise men arrived in Jerusalem. He could have easily reasoned that it would be many years before this one or two-year-old child could try to exert himself as the king of the Jews. Herod knew how to do math, and he knew what his life expectancy was. And so the only threat this one or two-year-old child could really have humanly possibly posed was to the Herodian dynasty, which is to say it would be a threat to Herod's successor, not necessarily the Herod himself. Uh, But if this child is the Messiah, then that's a different situation. Because Herod knew that the Jewish people uh, expected the Messiah to come and for the Messiah to be a great military leader, something along the lines of Alexander the Great. Herod knew that the Jewish people's expectation was that the Messiah would liberate Israel from Roman tyranny. His fear, Herod's fear, therefore, was that if the Jews got wind that the Messiah had been born, this might be the beginnings of civil unrest. The people might begin to stir and do some unpredictable things. And this this brings into view the fact that Herod was a client king. He ruled over Judea, but he did not do so of his own authority. He was a client to Rome. So he was accountable to Rome. As long as there was peace in Judea and the Jews were paying their taxes to Rome, Herod would be in a good standing with Rome. But if the people became unruly or if they stopped paying their taxes, then Herod would need to give an account to Rome for what was happening in his district. And the last thing Herod wanted was for the Jews to begin talking about rebellion or a revolution. So for Herod, hearing that the Messiah had been born was troubling because this would be the beginnings of unrest and an attitude of civil disobedience in Israel, the very thing Herod did not want. So So we see here our 
Uh, the two reasons why Herod was troubled with Jesus. Jesus exposed Herod's true identity and Jesus threatened to disrupt the life that Herod had created for himself. Now I submit to you that these are the main two reasons why everyone who's troubled by Jesus is troubled by Jesus. They're troubled because Jesus exposes their true identity as sinners and he, Jesus threatens to disrupt the life that they've created for themselves. As for the, the first of these, exposing their true identity of, as sinners, it's not difficult to understand why this is troubling. There are feelings of shame and guilt that come with the awareness of being a sinner. Uh, these feelings are not pleasant. They're actually quite uncomfortable and can in many ways be overwhelming. A stubborn and unrepentant sinner will always be troubled by Jesus because Jesus exposes him as a sinner. In other words, the mere presence of Jesus makes it so much more difficult for the unrepentant sinner to suppress those unwanted feelings of shame and guilt. He doesn't, there, there's, no, there, there's no outlet for them. The only outlet is the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that's been rejected. Then there's the sinner's fear of reprisal. Because he does not trust Jesus, he thinks that if he acknowledges his sin to Jesus, he'll be punished by Jesus. Which is to say, the person who is troubled by Jesus is not believing the gospel. The person who's troubled by Jesus is not believing the gospel. He's not believing that true confession leads to true forgiveness. Rather, he believes that confession will lead to reprisal. So he's deeply troubled whenever his true identity is exposed. He would much rather keep his sinfulness covered up so he could pretend that it doesn't exist. And then there's pride. Plain and simple, Pride causes sinners to resist and reject the only thing that can save them from their sins, which is to humble themselves in repentance. So when Jesus exposes prideful sinners' true identity, this is always going to be troubling to them. Jesus will be troubling to them. And as for the, con the second concern that Jesus will disrupt the sinner's life, uh, this is not difficult to understand either. In his fallen condition, the sinner clings very tightly to his perception of autonomy and the idea that he has control over his own affairs. And the idea of surrendering all of this control and submitting to the will of Jesus is a dreadful thought to the unbeliever. Yet he knows that this is what Jesus demands. And so this troubles the sinner. Add to this the fear of the unknown. Uh, to follow Jesus in the manner that he requires involves trusting Jesus, even when you cannot see the full picture, even when you don't know where he's leading you. This is untenable to unbelievers. It's absurd. They, uh, they think Christians are gullible people because we stop using our brains and we just blindly follow after Jesus. Of course, this is not a true depiction of what following Jesus is. Uh, we don't check out our brains. We, we, we don't stop using logic and rational function. Uh, but that's what the unbeliever believes. That, that's the, the, belie the, the perception 
of the unbeliever, and it troubles him to think that this is what would be required of him if he were to become a Christian. But perhaps the most obvious reason some people are troubled by a Jesus-induced disruption in their lives is because of their attachment to sin, because of their attachment to sin. They know that Jesus requires them to forsake their sin. They know that if they were to surrender themselves to Jesus, then they would be required to give up the sinful things that they've come to love. So many of them, uh, some, so, so many of them uh, choose to maintain their present sinful life simply because of their attachment to sin. They love their whiskey more than they love Jesus. They love chasing women more than they love worshiping Christ. They love unrighteous mammon more than they love serving the Lord. And even though they intrinsically know that the sin they're engaged in is destructive and will always lead to pain and sorrow, the unregenerate sinner is willing to be enslaved to sin. <coughs> He's enslaved willingly to his sin, like a dog that returns to his vomit. The sinner keeps coming back to his sin, even though he knows it will eventually lead to his own destruction. And this is why he's troubled by Christ, because he knows that he will one day stand before the holy tribunal of Christ. And he knows that the just judgment of Christ will bring the eternal wrath of God upon this person's very being. He knows that eternal condemnation is his end. And so for this very reason, Jesus is troubling to the unrepentant sinner. When Herod was troubled, <clears throat> he consulted the chief priests and scribes, and they were able to point him to the prophecy in Micah 5, verse 2. Um, look at verses 4 through 6 of our sermon text. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is the correct answer to Herod's question. When the chief priests and scribes were asked where the Messiah was to be born, they knew what the word of God said on this matter. They knew the prophecy in Micah that it says that he'll be born in Bethlehem. But notice how apathetic the chief priests and scribes are in our sermon text. They're treating this more like a humdrum Bible trivia game than a thrilling fulfillment of Bible prophecy. You would think that since these men are the religious leaders in Israel, they would be eager to join the search party. You would think that they would have run out to where the wise men were exclaiming, Bethlehem! God prophesied through Micah that the Christ will be born in Bethlehem. Come on, we'll show you the way. It's only six miles from here. But that's not how the scribes and chief priests responded. They had all the correct information about Jesus, but they had no passion or excitement for Jesus. The chief priests and scribes are the 
second subject of our consideration this morning. Whereas Herod serves as a model for those who are troubled by Christ, the chief priests and scribes serve as a model of those who are apathetic to Christ. Brothers and sisters, many people within the visible church are like the chief priests and scribes. Many people know all the correct information about Jesus, but they have no passion or desire for him. They might be able to point to several generations of professing Christians in their family. Their parents profess to be Christians. Their grandparents profess to be Christians. Even their great-grandparents profess Christ. They may have been baptized. Growing up, they may have memorized the catechism. As teenagers, they may have taken a special class and been confirmed by the church. They may have had the privilege of going to a Christian K-12 school. Maybe they went on to study at a Christian college. And maybe they're married and are raising their own children who are memorizing the catechism and going through a K-12 school, Christian K-12 school. But there's no passion for Jesus in their life. They have all the answers in their head, but there's no fire in their heart. There's no evidentiary works of faith in their life. There's no discerning fruit being born in their life. There's no zeal for the things of the Lord. This condition goes by many names. Nominal Christianity is a popular one. Cultural Christianity is another popular name. Superficial Christianity, lip service Christianity, casual Christianity, symbolic Christianity. But these are not the names that the Bible uses to describe this condition. The Bible has a lot to say about this condition, but it uses more descriptive terminology. James 1 verse 23 refers to it as being a forgetful hearer and not a doer. A forgetful hearer and not a doer. James 2.26 calls it faith which is dead. Hebrews 5.11 calls it people who are dull of hearing. 2 Corinthians 3.13 refers to it as people who have a veil covering their heart. Zechariah 7.11 refers to it as people who shrug their shoulders and refuse to heed. Shrug their shoulders and refuse to heed. Heed the word of God, that is. <laughs> Jesus referred to Apathetic people as whitewashed tombs that are pretty on the outside, but full of dead men's bones and uncleanness on the inside. He also referred to this condition as hypocrisy, spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness, foolishness, being sons of hell, being workers of iniquity, and being snatched away by the wicked one. In his letter to the Laodiceans, Jesus referred to this condition as lukewarmness. Listen to Revelation 3, verses 15 through 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. 
And Jesus goes on in verse 17 to provide a more detailed description of the lukewarm condition. The alarming part is that he says lukewarm Christians don't even realize that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They don't even realize that their garments are soiled by their sins. They don't realize that the shame of their nakedness is exposed to the holy gaze of God. They don't realize that if they remain in their present condition, they will experience eternal death. Oh, sure, they they know the Romans road. They know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they know that the wages of sin is death, but somewhere along the line, they've been deceived into believing that they've already escaped those wages of death, which is to say somewhere along the line, somebody gave them a false assurance of salvation. Somebody told them something like, you've been baptized, so you're a Christian now. You've said the sinner's prayer, so you're going to heaven now. You raised your hand during the altar call, so you're saved now. You prophesied and drove out demons in Jesus' name, so you're going to have one of those really big mansions in heaven. Yet in all the many years of sitting in church, listening to sermons, partaking of the sacraments, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and being patted on the back by other lukewarm Christians, the deceived soul has never properly heeded the instruction given in 2 Corinthians 13.5. And this is why he doesn't realize that he is wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Do you know the instruction I'm referring to? Listen as I read from 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? It's interesting that Paul gives such a strong exhortation for us to test ourselves as to whether we are truly in the faith, but he doesn't include instructions for how we're to conduct the test. Have you ever noticed that? I suspect Paul leaves out those details because uh, he has already written about those in other places. Um, and not only has Paul written about those details in other places, but so have the other biblical authors. Plus, it makes sense that Paul would uh, take this approach of not including those details because there's no single test for determining whether you are in the faith. It's not like you have one test and that's the one you do. No, there are several tests that we can use to perform this examination. We can test whether the Holy Spirit resides within us. We can test whether we bear the righteous fruit of repentance. We can test whether we have an appropriate love for God in our heart. We can test whether we love the brethren and love our neighbor. We can test whether we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We can test whether our faith is causing us to walk in the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. We can test whether we have been delivered from the dominion of sin. Or we can 
look for discernible progress of sanctification in our life. But in keeping with the contents of our sermon text, I'm going to suggest that, that we perform this test this morning, that each of us do it on ourselves, and that we implement a different test than the ones I just listed. As you examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith, I suggest you consider whether you display the same evidences of salvation that are exhibited by the wise men. And what is it about the wise men that distinguish them from those who are troubled by Christ and those who are apathetic to Christ? The wise men are the only people in our sermon text who worshiped Christ, who worshiped Christ. Notice four things about the wise men's worship of Christ. First, notice the effort they were willing to expend to worship Christ. They had to travel a considerable distance to get to where Jesus was. More than likely, they had traveled for many months before they reached Bethlehem. Yet the time, distance, and effort were not obstacles that prevented them from worshiping Christ. As you examine yourself, are you persevering through the obstacles of time, distance, and effort so that you can worship on Sundays? This is no small consideration for our congregation. For the vast majority of you, uh, we're not that neighborhood church which is just around the corner from where you live. Our congregation is made up of people from six different counties. Six different counties. And many of you drive a considerable distance to get here each Lord's Day. Many of you expend a lot of time and energy to get here each Lord's Day. <clears throat> this is not a trivial consideration. This, this is a reflection upon the value that you place on worship. Like the wise men, you're willing to invest the time it takes to get to where God has directed you to worship him. And you're willing to travel the distance to get to the place where God has directed you to worship him. And you're willing to expend the effort required to do all the things necessary that you can get to the place where God has directed you to worship him. And by way of comparison, <clears throat> the wise men probably traveled around 600 miles to worship Jesus. Herod, the chief priest and the scribes would not even travel six miles. What does this indicate about the commitments these different people have for worshiping Jesus? Second, uh, notice that the wise men followed a star, but they didn't follow just any star. They only followed his star, as it says in our text, or Jesus' star. They had the spiritual discernment to identify Jesus as a star from all the rest of the stars, and they were faithful to follow only Jesus' star. In similar manner, brothers and sisters, uh, there are many idols and false gods competing for your worship this morning. Uh, so who or what did you come to worship this morning? This is part of the assessment, part of the examination. Who or what did you come to worship? And be honest with yourself. If you're going to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith, you need to be honest with yourself and realize that the focus here is on worship, not on going to church. We 
know that going to church is not what saves a person. Uh, it's been well said that standing in a garage doesn't make you a car, and sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian. We're not examining ourselves this morning according to some legalistic standard of checking the right boxes on Sunday. Rather, we're examining our hearts right now. Uh, we're looking at our reason for assembling for worship. Why did you come to worship today? Is it to worship the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it to offer up your praise and thanksgiving to the triune God? Or is there a different reason for your presence here this morning? Did you come for the fellowship? Did you come for the food? Did you come for the recreational activities that happen after church? <clears throat> Food, fellowship, and recreational activities are not wrong reasons to come to church, but they're not the reasons you come to worship. We need to maintain that distinction between coming to church and coming to worship. Uh, your primary reason for being here should be to worship our triune God, and everything else is secondary to worship. If, if you invert this structure so that food, fellowship, or recreational activities are more important to you than worship, then this is very concerning. This means you're not here for the right reasons. Something is tragically askew in your spiritual walk. And this should make you pause to consider whether you might have forgotten your first love. This should make you pause to consider whether you might be a lukewarm Christian. And this should drive you to your knees, pleading with the Lord to enliven your faith and to give you a genuine desire to worship Christ with a similar zeal and discernment that we see in the wise men. Third, notice that the wise men's worship was characterized by humility. Verse 11 says, they fell down and worshiped Jesus. Uh, they were not too proud to humble themselves before the Lord, even though he was a, a young child. They were not too proud to bow their faces on the ground before the pre in the presence of the Messiah. They were not too proud to posture themselves in a way that demonstrated the majesty and holiness of the one they were worshiping. As you examine yourself, as you examine the worship that you're bringing to the Lord, is there a similar form of humility contained in that worship? The most obvious time in, in our worship liturgy when such hum humiliation or humility is, would be seen and, and is necessary is when we're confessing our sins to God. Do you use the time of confession for confession? Do you actually confess your sins when we're having that time of silence? During the minute, minute or two of silence, are you bowing your heart to the ground as you seek the Lord's forgiveness? Or are you daydreaming about something unrelated to worship? Are you wondering whether you remembered to turn the crock pot on when you put it in the kitchen? Or are you using that minute or two of silence to apply the reading of God's law to someone else? Are you sitting there thinking, oh, I wonder if so-and-so is paying attention to what the pastor just said. 
because so-and-so really needed to hear that. I hope so-and-so is humbling themselves in confession right now. Proper humility in worship, dear friends, is that which submits oneself, not others, but oneself to the majesty and holiness of God. Proper humility in worship is one that submits oneself to the majesty and holiness of God. And that's why, that's what the wise men are doing in verse 11 of our sermon text. And this serves as a model for us to emulate in our own worship of God. And fourth, notice that the wise men uh, shared their wealth with Jesus. Verse 11 says that they opened their treasures and presented gifts to Jesus. And I get the the distinct impression that the wise men were giving of their treasures with joyful hearts. Don't you get that impression as well as you read this? That they were quite joyful and there's no indication that they were giving grudgingly, nor is there any indication that they were giving miserly. The text shows that they were giving cheerfully and generously. Uh, And this speaks very loudly to the faithful disposition of their hearts in worship. So as you're examining yourselves, consider the manner in which you give your treasures to Christ. Giving is an aspect of worship. So what is the disposition of your heart in this form of worship? Are you a cheerful or a reluctant giver? Are you a generous or a miserly giver? Or are you even a giver? Over the course of this sermon, we've noticed three distinct responses to Jesus. There are those who are troubled by Jesus. There are those who are apathetic to Jesus. And there are those who worship Jesus. The question I hope you're contemplating and will continue to contemplate beyond today is how are you responding to Jesus? Are you troubled by him? Are you apathetic to him? Or are you worshiping him? Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted. Copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George. Available at NathanClarkGeorge.com.